Morning, everyone. Ahu Kulumasi, Ni Jinji Makwa, Timber Jacobs. Ni Nakomis, Greta Jacobs, Ni Guka, Howard Jacobs. Ni Takalangamau, Ni Mahikanu. In Nakako Satua, Kulumasi, Anishik, Anishik, my relatives Jim in Alberta and Josette, Anishik, boys from Sisseton, Anishik, Pastor Mike, Anishik, Sanctuary Covenant. I give you greetings this morning and I introduce myself as Bear or Jim Bear Jacobs. I'm the grandson of Greta. Jacobs and Howard Jacobs. I'm a member of the Turtle Clan of the Mohican Nation, and with goodness in my heart, I extend my gratitude to you today, and my gratitude for my relatives from Pine Ridge, my gratitude to our boys from Sisseton, gratitude to Pastor Mike, pastoral staff, and Sanctuary Covenant. It's good to be with you this morning. I wasn't sure I was going to actually make it this morning. Uh, yesterday, my wife went to the store. She took one of my daughters. They went to the store. When they came back, she said, I bought the kids a trampoline. I need you to put it together. Now, I ain't going to lie. I just about lost my Christianity on that trampoline. You ever want to have a moment where you're just kneeling in your backyard, looking up into heavens, wondering if there actually is a God, try putting together a 14-foot trampoline on a Saturday night as the sun's going down. Nevertheless, I prevailed, and I'm here. It's good to be with Sanctuary Covenant Church. I've uh, had connections with Sanctuary in the past, uh, I know a little bit about you. Most of what I know is because I occasionally have breakfast with John Lundberg. Now, I don't know if you want John to be your official ambassador for Sanctuary Covenant, but he kind of is, at least in uh, my perspective. Uh, I visited Sanctuary a number of years ago. This is back when you were meeting in the school. And uh, I was just, I, I don't even remember why I was visiting, but I was visiting there. And I walk in the door, and I'm greeted by a woman, and she says, you're Jim Bear. And I said, I know that. <laughs> and she introduced herself. It was, it was Amy Lundberg. And she said uh, that she had been at some event that I was speaking at uh, within the last few weeks prior to, to this day, and she looked at me and she said, you ruined my life in the most beautiful way possible. So I have that reputation. My senior pastor refers to me as a disruptive force. And that is a calling that I hold very dearly and try my best to live into. I want to thank you and recognize that it says a lot 
about your spiritual maturity as a congregation that when the drum was playing, you saw fit to stand. Uh, because that does not always happen in uh, congregations where a drum is present. There are many times where I'll be speaking at a church and they'll bring in a drum group and the drum group will play and the people will remain seated. And what I want to tell you is what we've just been gifted by these boys from Sisseton is as much an act of worship as what we were gifted with by our worship team from Crown College. And in many congregations that I go into, when the drum group begins to play, people remain seated because in their mind, this is worship while this is entertainment. This is part of what I'm called to do. I'm, a, I'm what you call a native missionary. Now I know you hear that and you think, okay, he's one of these guys who goes into Indian reservations and preaches the gospel to the savage heathens. No. I will not, and for many decades have not, and never again will I go into an Indian reservation and preach a gospel to the savage heathens. My goal as a native missionary is to bring the indigenous voice that is alive, that is resilient, that is breathing life into this country, bring that voice into the churches because that is where it is desperately needed. I have to admit, I'm a little nervous in front of you as I was preparing this message uh, I came across a bit of research that gave me pause. Uh, this was a paper uh, published by some psychologist, and it was uh, a paper that uh, did an in-depth study on what sociologists refer to as the beauty bias. Now, the beauty bias quite simply states that we as people, we inherently put more trust and in value what people have to say if we find them beautiful. The reverse of that is if we find someone not beautiful, we don't value what they have to say and we don't inherently trust them as a presenter. And as this research came to me and I'm reading through this, I have to admit uh, an incredible moment of self-consciousness and perhaps doubt. As I was thinking to myself, I wonder how effective my message would be if I weren't so incredibly beautiful. <laughs> Pastor Mike knows the struggle, right? I mean, I don't know how ugly preachers get anything done. It's just, it's a mystery to me. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be reading a short passage from Exodus chapter 2. Starting in verse 11. One day, after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them 
at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people, looking this way and that, seeing no one. He killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, what I did must have become known. When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. Moses is an incredibly interesting character. He has a beautiful story. Moses is born to a slave mother living under Pharaoh's oppressive regime. And at the time that Moses was born, there happened to be a law passed by the Pharaoh. Pharaoh was worried that these Hebrews were breeding like rabbits and they, soon they would overpopulate and there'd be too many to control. So Pharaoh enacted a decree, a law, that stated that every Hebrew boy below the age of two years old, was to be put to death. And this is the context that Moses is born into. Legally, he should have been put to death. But Moses' mother hid the fact that her child had been born, that she had a son. Until such a time she felt it was not safe that she could hide him anymore, what they did is Moses' mother and his sister, they created a basket and they laid Moses in the basket and they floated him down the river thinking whatever fate he finds downriver will be better than living under the fear of Pharaoh here. And as this story unfolds, the basket floats downriver and just so happens that at that time as he's going down the river in a basket, Pharaoh's daughter comes out to the river to wash herself. And seeing this basket float by, she pulls the basket from the water and sees that there's a baby. Now Moses' sister had been watching this all unfold and she sees that Pharaoh's daughter is having feelings stir for this little baby. Some maternal instinct is kicking in. And Moses' sister, brilliant, brilliant young woman, goes up to Pharaoh's daughter and says, you know what? Why don't we get one of the Hebrew slave women to nurse this baby for you? So that she can feed this child until such a time as he can be weaned. And in this brilliant, calculated move, Moses ends up being nursed and nurtured by his own mother under the protection of Pharaoh and Pharaoh's daughter. Until such a time that he could be weaned. And then Pharaoh's daughter adopted Moses as her own, and Moses went to live in the palace with her and the Pharaoh. Moses grew up in the palace with all the privileges, all of the benefits, all of the wealth 
all of the power of a royal lineage. We don't even know for certain that Moses knew that he was an Egyptian. Scripture doesn't tell us that Moses knew that he was Hebrew. And so one day Moses goes out amongst the Hebrews. Maybe he has a thought that he might belong to these people, but he grew up in the palace. And he sees an injustice being carried out, a Hebrew being mercilessly beaten by an Egyptian. And he acts. He's moved on behalf of the Hebrew slave. Why? What connection does Moses have having grown up in Pharaoh's household? The way it plays in my imagination is as Moses moved in and amongst the Hebrew people, he heard, he heard their songs and his spirit recognized something. He heard their stories and his spirit was awakened into something. He heard their prayers and his spirit was made alive into something. I've been doing this work of uh, teaching, preaching, speaking, educating. Uh, I've been doing it for a number of years now. And so I get called many things. Pastor, reverend, teacher, professor. I get called lots of things. One thing that people uh, have more recently started calling me is activist. And it's not something that I sought out. I never thought, oh, I'm going to be an activist today. And in fact, I don't even know that, uh, that when it was first used on me that I was that comfortable with the term activist. Right? There are certainly people who are far more activists than I am. I've never been arrested, never done any time in jail, come close, but somehow never did. I've never been tear gassed for any cause, never had the cops bring a billy club down on me. I've marched in the streets, but I've avoided all of the sort of punishments, the repercussions that you really think activists get. But that term keeps getting used to uh, uh, identify me. And so eventually I just had to kind of come to grips with, okay, I didn't set out to be an activist, but I guess I am. And most people who are activists, they can't ever really point to an exact time when they became an activist. It's not like on Tuesday you are a normal person and on Wednesday you're an activist, right? It's something that you just kind of move and progress and evolve into until other people start calling you activists and you can't argue with them anymore. 
So most people don't know the exact time that they became an activist. I am different. I know the exact time. I have a date when I became an activist. It was the second Monday in October in 1992. I was a sophomore in high school. Now, the second Monday in October is Columbus Day. 1992, this nation, indeed the entire world, was getting ready to celebrate the 500th anniversary of discovery. So much so were people celebrating this that in the time leading up to the second Monday in October of 1992, three replica ships had sailed across the Atlantic Ocean and were docked someplace just east of Hispaniola waiting to make landfall on Columbus Day of 1992. A replica Nina Pinta Santa Maria. And the entire world was watching and waiting to celebrate. The entire world except a small group of indigenous people. Now, I didn't grow up with a hard... uh, embodied understanding of my native identity. I always knew I was native, I always knew I was Mohican, but I didn't grow up in it. I'm what we call a city Indian, okay? And sometimes city Indians don't necessarily know all the deep intricacies of their own traditions. So this city Indian is watching these events unfold as as some Italian dude in uh, 1492 dress is standing on the bow of a ship waiting to make landfall in the Caribbean. And everyone is celebrating except over here in the corner, not getting much airplay. There's these Indians who are just kind of really making a little bit of noise. And I have to confess, as I stand before you today, that in 1992, as a sophomore in high school, I didn't really understand what their big beef was about. I didn't know what Columbus had done. My story of Columbus came from the history books that were fed to us. So for me, he was a hero. For me, he was this great, brave explorer. I didn't know that he was a gold-hungry thief. I didn't know that he was a a sex-obsessed maniac. I didn't know that he took girls as young as 9, 10, 11 years old and sold them into sex slavery to pacify the appetites of his crew. I didn't know that he lit on fire groups of native people 13 at a time to honor Jesus and the 12 disciples. So I didn't know these things and I didn't know why are these natives so 
upset. But on that day, in the lead up to that day, I started listening to their songs. I started listening to their story. And perhaps for the first time in my life, I actually heard their prayer. And something awakened in me. Something called me to action. What could I do? I went through my closet and I found the most Indian shirt that I could find. Something you'd find in a South Dakota truck stop. Just a t-shirt with a beautiful image of the Black Hills and some kind of grand uh, chief with a war bonnet mysteriously floating in the clouds above the Black Hills. Okay, not Indian at all, but it's the closest thing I had. I put it on. Then I raided my mom's arts and crafts supplies and I found some feathers that looked a little bit like eagle feathers. Now, they looked nothing like eagle feathers, but they looked almost like, a little bit like eagle feathers. <laughs> and I took those feathers and I tied them in my hair. Yes, I had hair back then. I tied them in my hair. And with a big black permanent marker, I made a sign and I taped it to my back. I was not discovered. I went to school that day. Made the school paper. First time I ever got into any kind of media. Made it to the principal's office later on that day because I was causing a little bit of a scene. The principal says, you know, Jim Bear, I ought to suspend you. I said, Principal, how do you think that's going to play out in the school paper? Principal suspends Native American student on Columbus Day. He's like, yeah, that's not going to work out really well. Just try to keep it down, son. Oh, yeah, I'll try to keep it down. So on the second Monday of October in 1992, an activist was born. An activist was awakened. And it came because I heard the songs of my people. I heard the story of my people. And I listened to the prayers of my people, just like Moses. On that day, heard the song of his people. Heard the prayer, the stories of his people. Just like Moses, on that day in October, I was awakened to the injustice of my people. And it led me to action. Moses was led to action. Certainly not an action that we would condone today. But nonetheless, he was led to action. Then, after awakened, Moses fled. He went into the wilderness, to Midian, to sit by a well. He gave up all of the wealth 
all the power, all of the privilege that growing up in Pharaoh's house had gained him. He gave it up. He went out to the wilderness to purge the imperial tendencies within his own body, within his own thoughts, and within his own spirit. I go into a lot of different churches. Like a lot of different churches. I see the influence of the palace. I see Pharaoh's fingerprints in a lot of our churches. I see Pharaoh's influence in much of our theology. What are ways in which Pharaoh's influence resides in our theology? Today is Earth Day. In the church that I grew up in, steeped in Pharaoh's influence, in the church that I grew up in, the earth was nothing more than a resource, an object, a thing. And it was our responsibility as fine, upstanding human beings to extract from the earth every possible resource we could. As an afterthought, sometimes we thought about, we better be safe about this and we should recycle some of this too. But our primary goal was to extract every resource we could. To create economies and become wealthy from what the earth would provide. Indigenous people do not look at the earth as a thing, an object. For us, the earth is a relative. She lives, she breathes, and she graciously provides every life-giving sustenance for us. When we continue to see the earth as an object, as a thing, as something other than a relative, that is Pharaoh's influence in our theology. When we get upset or fail to fully understand why a few thousand Indians in Sanding Rock, North Dakota, would take months out of their lives to try and stop a pipeline that runs right through sacred land, that crosses right over one of this country's main waterways. When we don't understand that, when we get annoyed because that might inconvenience us a little bit, that's Pharaoh's influence on our theology. Pharaoh's influence on our theology causes us to seek, grasp, and hold on to power, however we can get it. 
We need look no further than this last election for evidence of that. I don't want to get political, but I'm sure you can by now probably tell which way I lean. That's fine. But I discovered something. When 81% of white Christians say that this current president reflects their values, you know what? Believe them. Don't fight with them. Don't argue with them. Don't say, no, that's not the Christianity I know because that is their Christianity. When 81% say that this administration reflects their values, believe them. And then weep. And be awakened. Another way in which Pharaoh's influence lives within our theology If you, somewhere in your spirit, believe that women are anything but total equals in every way, then Pharaoh has influenced your theology. If your theology in any way others women, systematically marginalizes them, silences them, then Pharaoh lives in your theology. You see, we as native people, we actually go a step further. Native men know that women are more powerful. They are more resilient. They are stronger than men. We as native men know that. That's a hard sell in white churches, so I will settle for equal. But in reality, women are stronger, they're more resilient, they're more powerful. I don't have time this morning to spell out how scripture actually tells us the same thing, but it's there. Women are more powerful. I've got four kids. My youngest is four years old. My wife was in labor for 36 hours with our youngest. I don't mean like in labor, like, ooh, I feel like something's kind of happening. I mean like screams that could peel the paint off the walls in labor for 36 hours. No drugs, no medicines, right? We gave birth in a birth center. We were home in four hours. In six hours, we were receiving guests and visitors. My wife's friend comes over one of the first visitors. And she says this statement in amazement, 36 hours of labor and no drugs? And my wife says, yes. And then I say something, and men, I'm speaking to you right now, sometimes you're going to say something, and as you're saying it, your mind will tell you, you better duck. (laughs) Son, you better duck. Because my wife's friend, Says the statement in amazement, 36 hours, no drugs. My wife, yeah. And I'm like, well, technically, at hour 32, you took a Tylenol. So, you know, after 36 hours of labor, she still had the strength to smack me upside my head. 
32 hours, she took a Tylenol, a Tylenol. Mike, not an extra strength Tylenol, a Tylenol, like regular strength. Women are stronger. We just need to, we just need to understand that. And if our theology says anything different, it's because Pharaoh has influenced and infested our theology. Another way that Pharaoh might live in our theology, this is the church I grew up in. We built the kingdom by scaring people out of hell. That's how we did it. Our main focus in evangelism was to tell people about a hell that tormented their ancestors, that, that was just torturing non-believers, and that if they said this 45-second prayer with me right now, they could save themselves from that hell. If your main tool to build the kingdom is fear, Pharaoh lives in your theology. And I was as guilty as any. We used to go through the streets of North, go through the streets downtown, Friday nights witnessing. We'd go to the, the drug addicts, the alcoholics, prostitutes. And I'd tell them that hell awaited them if they did not change their life. But lucky for you, I'm here to speak magic words over you. And if you just repeat these magic words, everything's good. And I got to put a little tally mark in my Bible, got another one today, and I went home to my nice, warm, comfortable bed while I left them on the streets. I saved them from an eternal hell and did nothing about the hell they were presently living in. I cared not that justice was enacted on their behalf. I simply cared that I could put a mark in my Bible that I got another one. Because I was serving Pharaoh. I wasn't serving the God of the wilderness. Sometimes... When you're a theologian, you wonder things, nerdy things that normal people don't wonder. And I often wonder what it would be like if the missionaries who went out to do the work of the Lord, what if they just assumed that God was already at work in the people they met? What if instead of taking the Bible and going into unreached places and saying, let me tell you what this says. What if we took the Bible into unreached places and says, will you show me what this says? Will you tell me the songs you have created to worship God? We wouldn't need things like black liberation theology. Now understand, I love black liberation theology, but I mourn the fact that it's necessary. 
Because if those going out perpetuating the gospel upon reaching the shores of Africa could have seen the Spirit at work in the lives and the spirits and the bodies of those people that they encountered, we wouldn't need to liberate our black brothers and sisters today. What would our theology look like then? What would our theology look like? Some of you know my friend Bob. Bob is the greatest influence in my life. I love Bob with all my heart. He's, he's a friend, he's a colleague, he's an, I call him uncle. He's a 65-year-old Dakota man. Dropped out of high school in the ninth grade. And I met Bob several years ago, seven or eight years ago. And uh, he invited me to participate in this pipe ceremony. And it's a ceremony that we as natives do. It's a way for us to connect to our relatives, connect to uh, creation and the creator. Take a, a sacred pipe, chinupa, and you fill it with chinchasha, which is uh, the inner bark of a red willow. And there's a ritual and ceremony just in, in how you fill the pipe. And I was at this pipe ceremony, and I'm watching Bob do this, and you fill it seven times. And you say a prayer each time you fill it. And I'm watching them do this, and it's familiar to me, but remember, I didn't grow up in this. But I'm watching, and on the seventh time he goes to fill it, he switches from his Dakota language to English, probably for my benefit. And he says, we fill this Chinupa in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And alarm bells go off in my head. I'm thinking, warning, Warning, warning. He just took a non-Christian sacred object and he invoked the Trinity in it. Can he do that? Is that even allowed? These alarm bells are going off in my head because I was schooled in Pharaoh's school. I went to Bible school in Pharaoh's Bible school and I went to seminary in Pharaoh's seminary. And when I saw this beautiful, sincere, heartfelt act my first reaction was to be frightened. Bob's testimony of how he became a Christian is unlike any other testimony I've ever heard. Bob didn't grow up in church. In fact, he was hurt by churches growing up. Bob still very rarely goes to church. But he will tell you he's a Christian because one day after decades of living under the influence of drugs and alcohol, he went into a sweat lodge, a purification, a cleansing ceremony. And in the sweat lodge, if you've ever been in a sweat lodge, it's very hot and it's very dark. You can't see anything. And there's a pile of rocks in the middle of the sweat lodge that is the source of heat. And Bob says as he was in the sweat lodge, he saw one of the rocks open up and a shaft of light hit him in the chest and an audible voice came from the rock and it said, I am the one they call Christ. 
I am here to bring you back your spirit. As Bob understood that as he was living under the influence of drugs and alcohol and running the streets, that when your body is that poisoned, your spirit can't live in it. So your spirit leaves your body and it wanders until such a time that your body is cleansed and pured and your spirit can return. And in this beautiful, meaningful, sacred ceremony, the rock opened up and Christ returned his spirit. Now, if I were listening to that story and I was still living under Pharaoh's house, I would question whether or not Bob would act, could actually call himself a Christian. He didn't confess anything. He didn't repent of anything. And he certainly didn't speak the words, I accept you as my personal Lord and Savior. But when we live under Pharaoh's household, we think we know exactly how people need to come to God. The reality is, look what happened to Moses. Moses fled, he went to Midian. After Midian, he went further into the wilderness. And in that wilderness, he encountered God, the burning bush that literally speaks God's name to Moses. When fleeing Pharaoh's temple, when fleeing the palace, that is where we encounter God. That is where we can begin to learn God's name. And it's in that kind of setting that Bob encountered God And I would say, in many ways, his Christianity, his relationship with God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is more pure. It is more beautiful. And it is more sincere than even my own spiritual walk. Because there is so much still that I need to purge from my body There are places where Pharaoh still resides. And Bob simply shows me a way. Don't worry about all that. Don't worry about that. Just simply come and encounter the divine. And the divine is present. when we push away from Pharaoh. My grandmother recently passed in August. She was 95 years old. Strongest, most beautiful woman that I've ever known. She stood four foot nine inches tall, but if any one of you crossed her, she would kick your ass in a hot second. Feisty woman. One day I'm speaking with my grandmother and I'm just learning a little bit about our history in our family and her story as a young child. 
And see, our family, we're kind of unique. We were what was called Hollywood Indians. We were in show business. We would do uh, Buffalo Bill, Cody-type shows. Uh, my great-grandfather was in so many Gene Autry Western uh, films. Um, and for a time uh, in the teens and 20s, they toured with the circus, the Ringling Brothers Circus. They had an Indian act in the circus. And I said, Grandma, did you ever have an act in the circus? She's the youngest of 11. And she said, no, I never had an act in the circus. I was too young. And she paused and she said, well, actually, technically, I did have one act in the circus. I said, what was that? I played Princess Coughs and Hobbles. What is Princess Coughs and Hobbles? She said, well, I would come out to center ring and I would, <coughs> I would cough and I'd hobble. I was a sickly little girl. She's playing this character. Sickly little girl. And I would come out to the center ring and then I would just collapse. And somewhere off in the darkness of the circus, a drum would start beating. And then this medicine man would make his entrance into the circus ring and discover me dead in the center ring. And he would start doing some incantations and shaking some rattles and just doing some goofy stuff. And all the while, the drum starts building, 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 until finally the medicine man makes his final circle around me and as the, the drum reaches its crescendo, I jump up and I joyously start running around the stage and I do a dance as the drum continues to play. And she tells me this, and I'm kind of laughing because it's pretty comedic, just in its, in its understanding, like just picturing my grandmother dancing around a circus ring and, and you know, the fact that her dad played the medicine man and his, her dad was far from a medicine man, but uh, it's kind of comedic. And then my grandmother, she paused. And her eyes looked downtrodden. And the only time I've ever heard my grandmother with any kind of regret or sorrow in her voice, she said, I was made to dance for white people. was made to dance for white people. You see, I bring elements like sage when I preach. I am honored to have the drum when I preach. These aren't entertainment. This isn't me dancing for you. This is me connecting to my creator in the most authentic, real way possible. This is for me. This isn't for you. You are blessed to witness this, but this is for me. You'll notice that I just lit the sage and I didn't ask permission if it was okay. Because I don't dance for white people. Because when we purge ourselves from Pharaoh's influence, we know to trust our own connection to the divine. We know that God can speak through a burning bush and Christ can talk through a heated rock. 
We know that a baptism by sage smoke and a baptism by water are equally valid. We know that a sacred drum and an electric guitar are both ways to connect to the divine. We know these things. We know these things when we purge ourselves from Pharaoh's influence, when we trust our connection to the divine, and when we stop dancing for those people. Let's pray. Gracious God, we come to you now and we repent. We repent that we have been complicit in systems that have marginalized our sisters, our mothers, our grandmothers, our daughters. We repent that we have been complicit in systems that would seek to build your kingdom through fear and intimidation while ignoring the injustice that they are surrounded with. We repent that we have questioned, that we have litigated against other people's connection to the divine and silenced those voices. May you, dear creator, continue to illuminate where Pharaoh's influence lives in our lives so that we may purge ourselves from it move out into the sacred wilderness and wholly and truly in a sacred way hear from you. We pray this with all of our relatives. In the name of all of our relatives, ho, matakwe amen.